Sentire Media. Hello you, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 161, The Italian Wars Part 1, Setting the Scene and Setting Off. Well, here we finally are, back to regularly scheduled episodes. We are ready to head beyond the year 1492, out of the Middle Ages and into the modern age. We won't go through all the question of changing eras and how they are set in hindsight and at the time nobody really felt that there was a new era coming. Nothing like, hey, that Genoese guy discovered a way to get to Asia and Lorenzo the Magnificent is dead. Oh, and the Pope is dead too. So we must have left the Middle Ages and are now in the modern age. Hooray, this is great. We are going to change the order a little from our usual trip around Italy because once again we're going to have a tour guide, a VIP guide, a king indeed, King Charles VIII of France and his expedition to claim the throne of Naples, which marks a period of conflict known as the Italian Wars. We'll follow him with his dealings in the Italian powers as he makes his way down into the peninsula. First of all, we must understand what this guy was doing charging down into Italy. And to do that, we have to go back to the delicate balance that had been reached on the Italian political scene. We know that by the 15th century, five big players had emerged on the Italian political scene. The Republic of Venice, the Duchy of Milan, the Republic of Florence, the Papal States and the Kingdom of Naples. Ever since the Peace of Lodi in 1454, these entities had kept each other in check, usually over minor powers as flashpoints, such as in the War of Ferrara, for example, or by proxy, such as when Venice egged on mercenary captain Bartolomeo Colleoni in the Battle of Ricardina. Although the Big Five would at times line up 2 versus 3 or 3 versus 2, depending on alliances, no single power was allowed to stick their head up much higher than all of the others. Some, such as early 16th century historian Francesco Guicciardini, attributed part of the merit to maintaining this balance to the shadow lord of the, by now, nominal Republic of Florence, Lorenzo de' Medici the Magnificent, with his careful diplomacy and cunning. This view was shared by Pope Innocent VIII, who would die shortly after Lorenzo in 1492. When the Pope heard of the death of the Magnificent, he exclaimed, Peace in Italy is over. Although Lorenzo was indeed a highly accomplished diplomat and politician, perhaps his importance is a little overstated, and things may have fallen apart even had he lived beyond his very young 43 years. The fact that I say very young, of course, has nothing to do with the fact that I am already three years older. Having said all this, we cannot deny that when Lorenzo died, the careful neutrality he had maintained was very quickly abandoned by his son Piero, who moved Florence's allegiance to Naples. 
the papacy had already done so, and that made the Duchy of Milan rather skittish, especially with Venice sitting on their doorstep looking to move inland. So what was the situation in Milan? Well, you, my dear listener, know very well that although there was an actual duke, Gian Galeazzo Sforza, real power lay in the hands of his uncle, Ludovico Maria Sforza, known due to his dark complexion and dark hair as Il Moro, the Moor. This wasn't a fairy tale style evil uncle keeping his nephew hostage and running the duchy with a cruel iron fist kind of situation. For starters, although Il Moro was indeed Disney villain ugly, he was a nice guy, friendly, and generous. Then, under him, the Duchy of Milan did quite well. It continued to be the second richest entity in Italy after the Republic of Venice, and the city of Milan itself grew to new splendor, with all sorts of artists being called in, such as one Leonardo da Vinci. Things went well also out in the countryside, with new investments and developments in agriculture helping to improve the economic situation. Another element in contrast with the evil uncle narrative was that the young duke, Gian Galeazzo, seemed quite happy not to be involved in the bothersome task of managing public administration. He was quite happy to hang around on his estate in Pavia and go hunting and rambling around the countryside, crashing peasant festivals and dances, which the peasants were not at all pleased about because apparently the duke was rather rude. There was one person in the equation, however, who was not at all happy about the status quo, and that was the young duchess, wife of Gian Galeazzo, Isabella of Aragon, daughter of Alphonse, son of King Ferrante of Naples. She complained bitterly to daddy and grandpa Ferrante, who in turn complained to Il Moro, and this was one, yet of course not the only reason, for animosity between the Kingdom of Naples and the Duchy of Milan. This brings us back round to the point of before. Ludovico Sforza was now facing the risk of four versus one, ganging up and having to fight Venice, Florence, the Pope, and Naples all at the same time. There weren't even enough smaller bits to even things up, and indeed many of the smaller bits hated Milan's guts anyway. So all Milan could do was look outside the confines of Italy to France. There was good old King Charlie VIII just waiting for a chance to prove himself and realize his romantic chivalrous fantasy, which included using Italy as a springboard for a great new crusade. He did not have the political savvy and skill of his father, Louis XI, and he also did not have the wisdom and patience that had allowed Louis to unify and consolidate France without risking what was perhaps the largest army on the continent in dangerous foreign endeavours. So when it came to encouraging him to intervene in Italy, everyone was preaching to the choir, or as we say in Italy, sfondavano una porta aperta. They were breaking down a door that was already open. So it was, that Ludovico il Moro started to say to Charlie, Hey man, we all know perfectly well that the throne of Naples is yours by right. Remember when in 1266 the Pope gave it to Charles of Anjou? 
but then the Aragonese took over after Joan II of Naples had named them heirs. But then she had also changed her mind and nominated René of Anjou. How dare they just sit smugly on your throne? Speaking of smugness, you, my wonderful follower, will feel real smug at the fact that you probably already remember all of this. We must also mention that Il Moro had an ulterior motive for calling in Charles and aiming him towards Naples. The fact that another member of the French royal family, the Duke of Orléans, Louis, had a claim to the throne of Milan. You see, his great-great-grandma had been Valentina Visconti of the Visconti family of Milan. The deal had been for that marriage that, if the Visconti line had died out, the throne of Milan would go to her descendants. Well, the Visconti had indeed died out, but the Sforza had come into the picture, and for the last 40 years, nothing could be done about it. So it was that Il Moro did his best to convince Charles to come and take his rightful throne in Naples. It is therefore he, Ludovico Il Moro, that gets most of the blame for the coming chaos and war that would rain down upon Italy, in a situation that had been in a relative balance. Obviously not without wars because they had them constantly, but not yet to the scale which was about to come. Although Sforza does indeed share part of the blame, we can't really pin it all on him. There were loads of people pushing for a French intervention for a whole load of reasons. The Neapolitan exiles wanted the Anjou back in power. The exiled Florentines wanted to overthrow the Medici. The Genoese faction in power wanted to help keep out the exiled Fieschi. Pisa wanted to get out from under the yoke of oppression of Florence. And Cardinal della Rovere really wanted to get rid of Pope Alexander VI. So you see, if there is blame to be placed for the French invasion and the start of the Italian wars, it is to be placed at the foot of all the Italians, with their infighting, squabbling, looking out for number one, and total lack of any idea of national identity when it really came down to it. So, let us turn our attention to Naples. King Ferdinand of Naples died on the 25th of January 1494. He had already had Pope Innocent VIII recognize his son Alphonse as the next king. When he died, however, King Charles of France, who hadn't cooked up the idea of the invasion to claim the throne of Naples overnight, protested with the new Pope Rodrigo Borgia Alexander VI and insisted that the Pope anoint him, Charles, as a new king. Pope Alexander said, sorry, there's already a deal with my predecessor, who am I to turn things around? So King Alphonse II of Naples was crowned by Cardinal Giovanni Borgia. Those Borgias sure had a habit of making it all the way to Cardinal pretty quickly. Alphonse, a little less tolerant and more naughty than his father Ferrante, had managed to keep a hold on power and control over his traditionally unruly barons. By this time, it was very clear that things up north were already in motion, so the Neapolitans confiscated the lands of Ludovico Sforza in the Kingdom of Naples, as well as those of other Milanese nobles, sold some castles to get some cash, and shored up their defences. Part of the money also went towards hiring a few condottieri, 
you will remember that these condottieri were mercenary captains who had their own army and supplies and weapons with whom you could sign a contract called a condotta to hire their services for a certain amount of time. In this case, Naples took on Fabrizio Colonna, Gian Giacomo Trivulzio, and Nicolò Orsini da Pirignano. But you can forget those names and remember just those of the main characters. For the moment, those are Ludovico Sforza, known as Il Moro, the de facto Duke of Milan, King Alphonse II of Naples, King Charles of France. As far as the alliances went, we had Milan and Ferrara with France, and the Pope with Naples. Venice was wisely neutral, and Florence was on a very rickety fence, as we will see. On the 26th of August, 1494, King Charles VIII of France left Grenoble with an army estimated between 30 and 40,000 on his way to claim the throne of the Kingdom of Naples. The Italian Wars had begun. Thank you, thank you very much for listening and thanks to your patience during this long recording delay. Thanks in particular to my wonderful Patreon supporters, starting with the first part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, who are Alison, Amanda, Annie, Anthony, Carsten, C. Lane, Cindy, Dean, Demetrio, Dennis, Dominique, Emily, Eric, Federica, Gabriel, Greg, Gunnar, Ignazio, Il Valentino, and Jacob. And of course, we cannot forget the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Antelighiri level, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, David L, Rinat, David C, JW, Sen, David A, Karen D, Peter F, Helenka, Kaiserbosch, and new arrival, Bridget. Thank you, thank you, one and all. The new arrivals over the summer period are... Carsten, thank you, Daniel, Linus or Linus, Annie, Bill B, the above-mentioned Bridget, and Tim C. Thank you very much. If, like the Patreon supporters, you would like early access to ad-free episodes, you can go to our webpage at ahistoryofitaly.com, go to the support page, and become a Patreon supporter. You can also click through to get in touch with us via email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. We're always very, very happy to hear from you. And, of course, you can click through to our social media, have a look at our timelines for the story so far, and other bits and bobs that you might enjoy on that humble little website. Once again, thank you very, very much for listening. Welcome back to the show. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. 
Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.